right, so I've already started recording, though we haven't hardly, maybe that was a little too soon. <laughs> right. Uh, it's very interesting about those recordings um, because uh, almost everyone in the beginning uh, takes it personally, becomes shy, thinking that uh, they're special and that they're afraid of something that might happen with it. But over the course of um, understanding the Dhamma, you begin to recognize, well, there really is no self, and that every problem that I can come up with, somebody else has come up with it dozens of millions of times, too, and that all humans are alike, and we all have the same problems. And so when we come in to discuss our problems, actually, we're just discussing the Dhamma anyway. Yeah, and I, I watched a lot of videos in the three days from other people, and I was really glad that they were online. And so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's uh, uh, the value of having the, uh, the videos, even though uh, they're generally just private conversations, but uh, the uh, video observer can get insights into that because we're very much all alike anyway. And so you saw what I just said on with someone else, and you say, "Yep, yeah, that's that's right. We're all we're all we're all alike." We suffer and we don't want to suffer and we don't know how to get out of suffering. And so we start to recognize, wait a minute, it's not suffering. It's just that I don't like it. <laughs> yes, there's a scheme to it. <laughs> <laughs> and that I even have a choice about that. And so that's basically uh, the, the Dhamma in a nutshell is that you have choice. And you can choose to feel good, or you can choose to feel bad. And I have to admit that sometimes people will find advantage in feeling bad. Uh, I'm sorry, management? I don't know that word. They can take advantage oh, of okay. feeling bad. Okay. A few of those would be, well... Look how hard I tried. Which is basically um, the same thing as kind of asking for forgiveness. Ah, okay, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, which basically uh, means that as long as I'm in the one down victim's position, I might as well find some advantage in being there. Yeah, that's funny. In the last three days, I've noticed a lot of self-pity and that it's like, it doesn't make sense to be there. That's right. But you see, until we start examining that stuff, we're just in it. Yeah. <laughs> and don't recognize that we're in self-pity. But it sure is painful. But then through Anapanasati, we begin to wake up, we begin to look, we begin to see what's going on. 
And in doing so, we begin to see that things as they are. Uh, and that in many times things are inherently unsatisfactory. Or let us say, um, next to that would be um, universally understood to be unsatisfactory. And there's a bit of difference between the two. And uh, then the various degrees on down uh, of unsatisfactory um, being a matter of opinion. And so um, as that opinion changes down the scale, um, people begin to, uh, to see, wait a minute, it's to my advantage, and therefore I like the unsatisfactory. Okay, an example of that clearly is, is that every cop in every major city in the world wants there to be crime. Yeah. Because if there's not, he's out of a job. Right? So that's a, that's a, a way of looking um, at, at the advantage. And that's in our society that's built in. But uh, always uh, there's the element of by taking advantage is doing it unwisely in the sense of rather than curing the disadvantage within oneself, we either want to fix it or manipulate it on the outside. But the real point is, is that all of the unsatisfactory is really not out in the world. It's really inside. It's actually beyond the world. And so when we begin to understand that, that's when the mind begins to let go of the world and then it becomes, uh, the Pali word is lokatara. And lokatara means to be above the world. It's often translated as transcendent, but that sounds way too Christian. And then there's another one that sounds uh, almost that bad called supramundane. But really all the word means supramundane is just to be above the mundane world. Now that's not the same thing as supernatural. That in fact, the natural and the supernatural are part of the mundane world. And so being all over the, even over the natural and supernatural, okay? Right, even the supernatural, especially the magic. Yeah. Magic is always mundane. If you see, if you see that, well, uh, some people will say, well, uh, magic is just wishful thinking, uh, but it's almost always wishful thinking about the world in relationship to them. And so all magic, uh, uh, let us say, even 
<laughs> Even if magic were real, it would still be ordinary and mundane. Because ordinary and mundane people believe in it, sometimes live their lives by it. So that will help you to understand it at that level, okay? Uh, to where the super mundane means to withdraw from that world, including withdraw from that world of magic. So that we can really start to look at what's going on on the inside. But there's a hook or um, an additional point. And that is, is that once we are doing an investigation on the inside, we have to start looking at it in, in, in a way that's very real. So that we can see what is unwholesome and deal with it. And, and keep what is wholesome and throw out what is unwholesome. That was right view from last time? Pardon? That was right view from last time? Yes, right. Okay, going in the direction of right view, precisely. <laughs> Very good. So, um, when when we start to investigate to see basically um there's there's a criteria or there's something that we're looking for and that is uh what we would call whether it is wholesome or not or dukkha or not is this dukkha this is dukkha okay when we recognize it for what it is that's all we have to do with it is just by recognizing it we avoid it. Or if it's in there and we see it, we throw it out immediately. This is a major, major difference in many people uh, see meditation in the sense of getting insight by going deeper into the nature of my thinking process. And the answer is no, all you're doing is just, uh, you know, uh, taking a good look at your hindrances but by doing so, you're actually keeping the habit of those hindrances going. Okay. In a way, making things worse. And so, uh, that's an important quality of the Anapanasati, is just to throw out that which we investigate and realize is not worth being here. That doesn't make me happy when I have those kind of thoughts. Let me have thoughts that uh, bring on happiness and joy. And so these are the hindrances of those things that hinder us from being in a, in a natural state of aliveness, of joy. And we, we experience that every day a little bit, just a little. At least we can sit down and relax for 10, 15 seconds. But here, with this practice, we're going to actually practice relaxing, to practice, to be easy on ourselves. 
And yet a lot of students will talk about having tensions and pain and uh, meditation being hard work and I strain and I concentrate. Well, that's not what we're actually intending to do. People do that all day long at their jobs already. <laughs> that really what we want to do is relax and enjoy the moment. Literally to take a vacation from our own thought process. But we have to catch it. And we have to see that right now that's useless. And so I throw it out. Now I think about something that's happening right here. Now the yeah. way that I... Go ahead. I just wanted to say that I had three really funny days thinking about every time I remember that no, uh, no gorillas are attacking me. And <laughs> <laughs> that's great, right. What's not there? There's no gorillas. Nobody bothering you, right? Uh, may that stay with you because that having that sense of joy, actually, what a relief that is, right? Because we're, we've got gorillas in the mind, <laughs> and then we wake up and say, "Wait a minute, there's no gorillas around here." <laughs> And so that's great. That's basically um, the practice right there in those few words. That the Buddhist system is actually quite easy to package together in just a little, a few words. And he used that too. In fact, the Buddha started it because he said, I teach only one thing, both formally and now. I teach only dukkha, dukkha naroda. Goenka, he had his own version. And his version was, never mind, start again. The one I generally use is, uh, don't worry, be happy. <laughs> but now we have a new one there are no gorillas in the room <laughs> <laughs> and so the whole dharma can be summed up that way and if we uh, take inspiration and joy from that then it will be an excellent part of our practice so that it will get us into that state to where we can really uh, stay in, in, a, in a, let us say, a good, positive state of mind where we can actually observe the thoughts and judge them as to whether they're wholesome or not. And decide that if they're not wholesome, out they go and we bring in something wholesome. And we continue to do that and we become quite skilled. But we have to continue to remember. Yeah, that and distinction so was kind of hard for me. <clears throat> that distinction between wholesome and unwholesome was sometimes, like I remembered and was like, okay, thinking about having great time with a friend. And I'm like, okay, I'm not in the moment, but it's not unwholesome for me. 
Ah, but here's the point about that, and I'll let you in on a little secret. In the beginning, you will have a whole range of things that you will put into the label of, yeah, is wholesome enough. But as you continue to investigate, you'll begin to move some of those things into, oh, that's not worth having. Okay. Okay. That could actually be um, some examples of that. Well, people will think, uh, well, I really have a lot of work to do tomorrow. And so let me sit here and think about it. That's a wholesome thing for me to do. But after doing a few practices with Anapanasati and recognizing things, they begin to say, wait a minute. I do not feel joy when I'm thinking about work. Therefore, I am going to now put thoughts about work into that category of off limits and out thoughts of work go. Okay. Another example of that would be uh, someone who is staying for an extended stay in a new place or country with the intention then for, uh, after a few months or a year, we'll go back to where he came from. So while he is in that new place, for him, he would begin to understand, oh, thoughts about that place are now going to be off limits. I'm going to have thoughts about where I am now instead of thoughts about where I'm going to be a month from now. Yes, that makes a lot of sense because in three minutes, ach, in three months, I will finish my university. And I was always thinking about, yeah, in three months, I will be really happy. Like when I'm done with university, finally, I can be happy. I can live a happy life. And I was always putting aside, no, no, not, not being happy now, please. Like in three months, it's fine. <laughs> okay. Well, you're beginning to change even your attitude about that. The thoughts about being happy three months from now. Eh? <laughs> Why is that? Is because that calendar tends to um, still have three pages on it all the time. It's always three months from now. It's always out in the future. Tomorrow never comes. Tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. And when I woke up tomorrow, guess what? It wasn't at all tomorrow. It was today. <laughs> I keep wanting to hope to wake up tomorrow, and I've never woken up tomorrow. It's always today. <laughs> and so when we begin to see then that thoughts about tomorrows are actually unwholesome keeps us with a job to do something busy maybe a bit of fear that if I don't get that done then something bad but I don't know what will happen mm -hmm. but <laughs> I'm just sitting here and I'm not doing a darn thing about it, except feeling bad. <laughs> and when we recognize, oh, there's no reason to think about the future, when all I do is don't, I really don't enjoy it. That's just an ordinary life. That's not super mundane. And so we throw that out too. So it's a process of making like a distinction and seeing, okay, that's unwholesome, that's unwholesome, where if before thought, that's fine. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, um, 
there is actually some suttas that talk about it in the sense of um, we'll use the word repulsive and unrepulsive or wholesome or not wholesome is the same thing. And that is, is that um, some people will practice trying to, regardless of whether it's wholesome or is unwholesome, they want to make it wholesome. An example of that would be sometimes in what you would call meta meditation practice. That we're trying to, may all beings be happy, may all beings be happy. But we're not looking at the fact that right now I'm not happy. I'm not actually seeing the unrepulsive uh, in this. Um, I'm not actually seeing the repulsive part of this unrepulsive thing that I'm doing. So this is basically what we mean also uh, with with that is, is that to see things as they really are. But that does take a, a new renewed investigation that in fact over and over and over the investigation goes then the deeper the wisdom grows but we have to keep looking and keep looking in fact the um the opposite of that would be of taking a quick look coming to a conclusion holding that conclusion and never taking another look at it And some people do that with their religion and their politics. My family was, was Republican, therefore I'm Republican, and now they never look at it, right? So uh, this, is, this is the whole quality. So is, what that means then is, is that within one kind of issue, there could be deeper and deeper layers of it. But the easiest way to do that is not try to go down deep into those layers and try to find something, but rather that whenever any one aspect of it comes to mind in this present mind moment, if we can catch that right then and there and see that for unwholesome and throw it out, then pretty soon we'll start connecting some dots. But it will only be because one at a time they come up. The um, the suttas define this actually in the uh, the term of adventitious defilements. Very ancient language. A better way of talking about it is is that um, defilements, as well as anything else, will take an opportunity. In other words, if something will be a just a little bit of a trigger, a little bit of cause. I'll get a really big effect out of it. Okay, adventitious defilements are going to take advantage of a very, very small trigger to blow up in a kind of a big way. Uh, so, uh, like, even a moment of not sati and it's in. It's the defilement. Okay. Oh, one of the common ones like that is, is that everyone's sitting very silently in the meditation retreat and... Uh, um, they're, they're sitting after about 10 minutes and some old man in the back sneezes really loudly. Big noise. 
half the people jump right up into the air. You can see their physical bodies just jump. But then you can see after that they're all agitated because they didn't like it. But what they're saying is, I became agitated because of that noise, therefore it's the man and his noise that I don't like. The old man should have shut up. He should have walked out before he sneezed or something. But in fact, what's really going on in that occasion is, is that when he sneezed and they uh, um, were not mindful so that the feelings did come up, now, if they would uh, investigate that and say, wait a minute, how I feel right now is what I don't like. And so it's really got nothing to do with that guy. That is because I don't like it. I was surprised. I became afraid. And then when you say, but I don't have to be afraid. Never mind. Let him go. Take a deep breath. And come back and let's be happy again. But some meditators, it takes them five or ten minutes to do that. Because <laughs> they're just grumbling and grumbling on inside. So they're not really ta- paying attention to, to see that, oh, these thoughts about him are unsatisfactory to me. Not what he did. What he did is what he did. It's the thing that I don't like it is the issue okay this is this is the idea then that it's a hindrance and this is what we have to wake up to and this is why we practice in seclusion to get away from it all hopefully even away from guys close enough to when they sneeze (laughs) it doesn't bring the house down um but that in that regard, meditation retreats don't always give the seclusion that people would prefer to have. But the idea of seclusion is to get away from it all so that any and everything that comes up has to be dealt with as is I created it. Okay. All right. Uh, but that often backfires for a lot of students. And it backfires in, in a way of uh, that if they go to the retreat and the retreat, like all retreats I know, okay, no books, no cell phone, no laptops, no pad, no paper, uh, no books especially. And so now, and no TV. <laughs> and so all of their general communications and um, time structuring devices are missing. And that people tend to deal with boredom. Mm-hmm. Okay, and the question to every one of them is, well, why are you being bored? Why don't you just sit here and enjoy your life? <coughs> <coughs> That's the question. Why sit here and be bored when you can sit here and have a ball? So boredom is just another hindrance. Pardon? So boredom is just another hindrance. Yes, it's got a name to it. In the suttas, it's it's referred to as restlessness. In other words, I'm not at rest. 
it can be referred to as the wandering mind. The mind's just out all over the place. Um, and so restlessness is actually a form of boredom. Or boredom is the same thing as restlessness. And a clear example of that is uh, on a road trip, kids are in the back uh, of the car and they say, Mom, I'm bored. What does mom do? She pulls out some toys or something and gives the kids something to do because of their boredom. And the toys are deep breathing into practice. Well, that's one. <laughs> okay, I'll take that. Right, give yourself something to occupy yourself with. It would be um, a, a way of thinking about it. But let's occupy ourselves with something wholesome, which would be the uh, the parts of Anapanasati, with the deep breathing and the um, uh, having the right thoughts and making sure that we've got the right thoughts, almost like playing a game with ourselves on the inside of the mind. You know, like uh, one of the games that the kids will play is, is that one, one kid will count all the blue cars he sees and the other kid will, uh, will count all the red cars that he sees. Okay. All Funny right, so that you, you mentioned it as a game because I played it like, like on the cushion. I played it as a game like, like I don't know if it's called playing catch. With aha, I see you, Mara. I was like, yeah, uh -huh. playing catch with with <laughs> with this phrase, and every time I caught it, I was able to throw it out, and then I set it up again. Great. Yes, that's exactly the right practice: is to uh, to see uh, the cars as they come and go, and to be able to decide whether they're wholesome and worth uh, keeping around or not. And as you continue to do that practice, several skills will be developing. One is, is the ability to remember to play this game. And the other one is, is that your ability to discern your right view will become more and more skillful the more you pay attention to what is wholesome and what is not wholesome. Or what is Dukkha and what is Dukkha Naroda. And so you begin to spend more and more of your own time in Vimuti, or release from suffering. And so, in fact, that would be one of the wholesome states to be in, is to recognize, hey, right now, this is good. There is absolutely no suffering. I like what's happening right now. And so we actually abide in the third noble truth, using the skills that we're developing in the eightfold noble method, or called a path. Got to make sure that the students understand that the eightfold noble path is not a path, or a highway, or a runway, but rather it's a method. And the way to, to, to look at it, it would be like a box of tools and your skills with those tools are going to develop so that you will become much more of an artisan rather than a traveler. Okay. And so that artisan work that we're doing is actually the artistry of this present moment.
And so uh, this is why they often refer to it as it's not the destination, it's the journey. But the real point is, it's not even a journey. <laughs> it's not really, because we're not going anywhere. <laughs> if anything, the thing to do is to stop our journey. We have already found our destination, and it's quite delightful. The Buddha actually refers to it like that, using the terms uh, translated into English as uh, the job has been done. The job has been well done. The job is over. Nothing more to do. The Zen haiku has that also in nowhere to go and nothing to do. And the spring comes and the grass grows by itself. And so um, it's not that you're going to spend 24 hours a day in that state, but rather that you can practice to get into it so that as you go around, you can revisit that state on a regular basis so that your life becomes really easy going. Because you've got no problems. And why don't we have any problems? Because we didn't make up any. Actually, the human mind is trained to be a problem solver. But the human mind actually uh, has its own thing. We think about uh, everyone desires the truth, but the human brain is not really designed for that. The human brain is actually um, useful in the way of making connections, connecting the dots, putting things together, being able to see a more or less complete story from only a few facts. This is what the human mind uh, can do. An example of that in the old days is uh, that animal we were chasing, we lost him. Where is he now? Hmm. And then they'll think about it and they'll say, all right, he's that away, and you go for it. Okay, so this is the kind of thing that, uh, that we're good at, but it's been abused into full-blown, we are now problem-solving machines. And many people are actually unhappy when they've got no problems to solve because their whole identification is, I'm a problem-solving machine. So a problem-solving machine that has no problems to solve, now that's a problem. <laughs> to solve. We got to go out and get a new problem. All right, and so here the mind will sit in our meditation, what we're calling meditation, making up new problems, mm. new ideas, new inventions that then we get attached to and long for and whatnot. So if we can understand that that's also a form of suffering, this dukkha, and you can also say that that too is part of the restless mind. The inventive mind. 
Mm. That we invent problems. Sometimes we even lose sleep over trying to um, put things together and invent problems. I remember doing that with code when I was uh, young. <laughs> yeah, I know that. I, I'm a programmer, yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> when there's a problem to solve, like you can dwell about it like for a long mm -hmm. time until it's solved. <laughs> And all that time you didn't need to spend on that. You could have been spend that time instead enjoying this breath at this present moment. And so we begin to see we actually waste a lot of our own time because we could actually be in the state of enjoying it. Um, I will mention to you that uh, Oh, there is a sutta that the Buddha talks about that divides meditation into two different worlds or two different ways of, of doing it. And yet, uh, when you understand what we're talking about, you can see that it's the similarities. And that in this sutta, the Buddha mentions four things that are in one category and then a fifth which is in a different category, and that category is normally the way that people practice meditation or practice anapanasati, in the sense that they go off on their own, and then they start to deal with whatever their mind comes up with, in the sense of if they can remember to watch, then they can judge what's wholesome and what's not wholesome, throw out the unwholesome, congratulate themselves for throwing out the unwholesome, and begin to feel good. That's the, that's the standard way that we're talking about in, in the sense of Anapanasati. But there's four other ways to do it. And one of the qualities of these other four ways is it all has to do about the Dhamma, the teachings of the Buddha. Now, what do I mean by that is I mean that all of the teachings of the, of the Buddha is wholesome. So if a student and a teacher are in a conversation, something like what we're having now, and the teacher says something that's inspirational to the student, well, at that very point in time, what's going on is, is that the student is listening, he's in the moment, and he is thinking about and mulling over what the teacher is saying, so he's dealing in the wholesome, and he's gaining inspiration through that. Because he's gaining inspiration through that, he becomes joyful, his body relaxes, and he allows himself to become quite satisfied with the teachings that he's learning from the teacher. And I just went through the items that are arranged in the uh, qualities of the first jhana. First, go, like I've heard this word a lot, but can you just give a close brief up like what it is? All right. The first jhana, the first quality of the first jhana is, is that it is a state that's free from the unwholesome thoughts. Hmm. The hindrances are not there. The thoughts that we have are wholesome thoughts. That's the number one item. <laughs> the second item is, is that 
the student then, through the seclusion from those hindrances, gains joy, becomes relaxed, and satisfied. This is pity and sukha. The next item on the list is, is that the mind is, um, they call it applied and sustained thought. And what that means is that the mind is being applied to what's going on. And in this case, it's a Dhamma talk. And that the student can sustain his mind on that Dhamma talk. So those are all of the definitions, formal definition of the first jhana. And it's quite delightful state to be in. You're opening, you're listening, you really get it. And you enjoy it. This is the state of first jhana. Now that can also be the case that instead of the teacher talking and the student uh, becoming inspired uh, and therefore joyful and relaxed, that can also happen to the teacher. The teachers can also jump right in while they're talking right into first jhana. So satisfying. <laughs> And then the third way of that would be that suppose then that it was just I, either the teacher or the student, whoever, was off um, in the Pali language. If you know the Pali, then the chanting of the sutras is quite valuable. Unfortunately, in modern times, like in Thai, even though the Thais do a lot of chanting, this chanting is done in Pali, and it's only rote memorization. But if you were chanting the Pali in the Pali language as your, uh, your native language, you could, while reading or reciting the Dhamma, you could gain inspiration. Okay. And so that was the whole point then of why did they do that at the, at the watch was because when, when it's done correctly, the students are already in first jhana before they even start their meditation. <laughs> But there is other possibility, and that's the fourth one, and that is, is that so long as you're thinking about the Dhamma, mulling over the Dhamma, especially the Four Noble Truths, is this suffering? What is the cause of suffering? Am I free from suffering? And thinking about the skills developed, investigating them. Well, you can be driving down the road and be just right into the Dhamma, and just the, it's all there, and you can feel so good. <sighs> and plop into, into, into first jhana while driving. Can be done. In fact, that's very attentive. But just so people uh, quite mindful to stay in that state while driving very safe. Okay. So these are the five ways, and the traditional way that we think of um, is the traditional way of doing the sitting meditation. But if you think about it in this regard, if we have the intention of having directly wholesome thoughts, then we're actually already in meditation. Paying attention and being in, in a state of wholesome thoughts. That's the way uh, to begin to approach what we want to do in our practice.
is okay. get our, get the mind free from that. Okay, so um, one one of the qualities then, even if it's if it's practicing metta, if the metta is free from the hindrances, then it's all good. It's very very wholesome. It's done correctly, but we have to be free from the hindrances first. So if we're free from the hindrances, then even spreading the joy. Thinking about the Dhamma, wow, wouldn't it be great if Donald Trump learned some Dhamma? (laughs) (laughs) So begin to have those kind of thoughts also. Very wholesome. To think about uh, um, not... Not making the world a better place, but making your mind a better place about the world. Yeah, the world screwed me up, but everybody in the world is screwed up, and that don't make them bad, it just makes them screwed up. (laughs) We're all a bit of screwy. I guess we got that way because of the wandering mind. It just goes all over the place. Winds up our whole lives are in a knot. So uh, when we get our own mind straightened out, we don't have to worry so much about the world. That's its problem now. That uh, uh, the world... Right now is not asking me for anything, therefore I don't owe it anything. And so if we begin to develop that attitude, oh, I don't owe it anything. I'm not in debt. It doesn't owe me anything. We're clean, you know. And so because of that, I don't have to get involved with the world at all. It's not my problem. This is also what we mean by um, Lokatara, is having the attitude that I don't need the world because I've got all that I need. Which is actually the right attitude. This is another aspect of the Eightfold Noble Path, is the right attitude is is that things are hunky-dory. I don't need anything. We're already successful. Already successful. Even the Zen masters will tell the students, you're already enlightened. What do you want? (laughs) You don't want nothing. If you don't want nothing, then you're already enlightened. Because what makes things heavy is because we want something. If we don't want anything, then we're free. So, going back to the original point that we were making about this, that when you begin to investigate to know what thoughts are wholesome and what thoughts are not wholesome, you can actually use that with the kind of um, hook or uh, tool of saying, well, what's in it for me? Because that brings up that selfishness. And when we see the selfishness in it, then we can recognize maybe this is not so wholesome after all. 
Now, so what's in it in me? Like, for what? What do I get from it? Does it make yes. me? Yes. Uh -huh. Precisely. In fact, you just you just gave it the secret, because what's in it for me basically is it's out there in the future someplace. That's in fact the question. What's in it means I'm missing something. We're not missing anything. We got everything we need. <laughs> And so begin to practice like that, that you're satisfied already. You've got everything you need already. And that's what needs to be practiced over and over again. Okay, maybe this, this fits in here because in the last three days I noticed, um, what is about neutral? Like, there's a lot of times when I walk through the day and I remember, like there's sati, and I'm like, Okay, there's nothing to throw out. But I'm not that satisfied. I'm not dissatisfied. I'm neutral. Is um, it fine or is there something to do then? Well, I got to admit that being in that state is a whole lot better than being dissatisfied now, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And that's what was, yeah, it's fine. I'm being neutral, but it's better than not being neutral. So. <laughs> it sure is. So uh, congratulate yourself for being able to get into a nice, easygoing state. Okay. I wouldn't call it neutral. I just called it the way that I think that you're talking about it really is. It's just a nice, easygoing state. You're satisfied. So maybe this was like all this tension that I mentioned because maybe I was like looking for too much because mm -hmm. when I when I read about look for the joy I was always like okay I have to be like blissful really walking around and being like the happiest day of my life and maybe yeah, neutral being satisfied is fine um You're bringing up a really important point that I would like to mention. And that is um, most people think about joy or uh, like the happiest day of your life is what you just mentioned. And that has a quality of an event. And events have the quality of an experience. And that Western um, Western culture tends to be event driven in the sense of this is going to happen at this time. All right. And so we begin to look at meditation also as event driven. And one of the events then would be the happiest day of your life. That would be one of the events. But within the concept of uh, um, the teachings of the Buddha, one of the qualities is called upeka. And upeka actually translates as, <laughs> they invented a word for it called equanimity. Uh, I would like to give you a better definition of it. And I, and I generally give the metaphor of an old salt who has... Um, 
developed the skill of having sea legs. So when he goes from one end of his small ship to the other end of it, uh, in uh, while it's out at sea, or even in heavy weather, he can get from one end of the ship to the other without having any events. But a landlubber who has no experience on board ships like that, smaller ships out at sea, he's not going to be able to get from one end of the ship to the other without having an event. He may get knocked against the wall, or he may have to heave over the side, or he may go over the side. Those are quite eventful. <laughs> but the landlubber is the one who keeps having events as he's trying to get to the other end of the ship. Now, if that landlubber was really wise and he would recognize, wait a minute, this ship really is none of my business and I don't even have to go to the other end of the ship, I can just stay here. And if he had stayed put, he wouldn't have any events. But that's a little hard to do. This is when you're getting into the um, uh, Bodhidharma uh, category or sitting as the monks and just never get out in life. No, what we really need to do is develop a bit of sea legs so that we can go around our life without having any events. And so if we can get to the point to where our lives isn't that marvelous to think about it, that you can go uh, in that state that you're talking, you call it neutral. But the best part about it is, is just there's nothing happening. It's got nothing going on. It's, it's free. <laughs> no worries. And so now we need to begin to have an appreciation for that state. You can check it out and say, yeah. No problems. Okay. Begin to see that almost as, as if it were that magical place of that third noble truth, freedom from suffering, because that's what you're actually describing. That neutral state means, hey, man, got no problems. <laughs> that alone should allow you to have some joy. Just being satisfied that you got no problems. That there's no jobs to do. Any jobs that you needed to do have already been done. Nothing to do. No place to go. Everything is cool. That sounds good. In a way, you're shortchanging yourself by calling it neutral. Yeah, well, why like I was asking is because there was nothing to do. Like, as you said, like I, I had nothing to throw out. And before of that, I got my joy from, yeah, that was really unwholesome. Go away. And okay, <laughs> cool, it's gone. And <laughs> yeah, so start playing with that, that state that you're calling neutral, but allow yourself to really wallow around in it, that it's really nice that you don't have any problems. Let that grow as a skill. No problems. Okay. 
And so this is the way to practice. Is to practice getting into that state of no problems. And so those are the hindrances that we throw out or anything that's going to keep you from being in that state of no worries, no problems. And the easiest way to practice that is in seclusion, but eventually you'll have to be going around <laughs> that ship that I mentioned <laughs> with these newfound sea legs of it don't matter what the weather is, I can handle it. Okay. Okay, okay, okay. I was thinking about something, but I, I forgot it, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's kind of leave it at that then. I think we've got something that you can work with. Okay, but one last question is, like you said in seclusion, so really sitting down on the cushion, like for how long how often like is there any recommendation because i like in the last three days i did my 40 minutes in the morning and then just tried to be mindful to remember throughout the day all right um let's say that right now i'll give you a short answer and then the next time that you call ask it again and we'll we'll use the whole session and talk about it as a long answer okay okay but the short, easy answer is, is that we want to find a way of gaining this mindfulness throughout our uh, life. That we only are practicing doing something on the cushion. And that what we're practicing doing on the cushion, we're trying to make it easy for ourselves in order to learn to practice. So that we get good at it so that we can go out there when it's not going to be easy to practice. Okay. So we need to do it on in both levels. That is having exercises that we're doing while we're in seclusion, sitting on the floor or getting away from it all, literally. Um, and then um, using those skills that we're developing and add some additional uh, sate or mindfulness practices throughout the day that especially have to do with the body. So as to make sure that on a regular basis throughout the day, we're waking up and continue to wake up. So that the more you practice these things, using them as anchors, the more often through the day that you'll be waking up, taking a deep breath, coming to the here now, and getting into a state of, wow, this is nothing, isn't that great? <laughs> and so we need to practice that till, till we, we make it, the sutta calls it unremitting. And I'm sorry, I don't know the word. Unremitting is like the energizer bunny that just won't quit. It's like a barking dog. It just doesn't shut up. As no. soon as you think he's quiet, then he'll start back up again. 
okay? It's not that he's barking all the time, but whenever he barks, that's too much. <laughs> Just won't quit, okay? This is what we mean by unremitting. And so what we want is we want sati to be unremitting, that it's going to come back whenever and whenever, uh, whatever time that we need it most, it's going to be there for us. That there is the quality of Murphy's Law. You probably know, if you've got any coding background, you know exactly yeah. what Murphy's Law is. Can you state it for me? Uh, everything that can happen, happens. That's the first half of it. What? That's the first yeah, yeah, and, and will happen, yeah, like. <laughs> no, no, actually it's stated like this. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong, and it will go wrong at the worst possible moment. Okay. When does a rocket ship blow up? While it's being manufactured? No. While it's being fueled? Or after they get the astronauts on board <laughs> and they're ready to take off and or they're taking off. The word possible moment is when the rocket blows up. All right. Another example. When does the new hotel software system fail? Does it, oh, uh, does it fail on opening night or does it fail the first time that they fill up? Fill up. Like first yeah, that's yeah. right. And that's right. The computer system, when you need it the most, when you have a convention and you're booked out, then it fails. <laughs> and that's why you have to build over capacity in hotels and things like that. It's because if you buy it for a thousand and you got on the cheap, then when you get a thousand, boy, down goes your system. Okay. And, um, Uh, Murphy's Law has been used in many, many kinds of things. So you can think of sati as like that. Okay. That anything can go wrong in your life, will go wrong, and it's going to go wrong at the worst possible moment unless you're awake. Okay. So sati is a counter to it. Sati is the, that's the instrument. That's the one that needs the most development, is to wake up and to wake up and to wake up. Okay. To wake up and smell the coffee, okay? If you can't wake up, you can't smell coffee. Now, the word smelling coffee actually has the quality of pay attention to what's going on. So we can't see what's going on if, we can't, if we're not awake. Okay. So that's the whole quality then. If we can, because basically... Um, you can get yourself back into that neutral state. It's great. It's wonderful. It's a lot better than you thought it was going to be. You keep practicing, you'll find out how nice that nothing is. <laughs> But meanwhile, if you don't practice, you won't get it. Okay. And if you don't remember, it won't happen. That's why Shati comes first. You've got to have Shati. Okay. And so we'll work on what we can do with that later throughout the day. But you've got it already enough to know that, okay, that's the skill that needs to be developed. And so you can begin to remember throughout the day to wake up, to take a deep breath, to go into that state of, oh, wow, this is really nice. How often can you do that? Once an hour? 
depends on what I'm doing. Like if I'm yes, like, exactly. it depends upon if you can remember or not. Yeah. So if I'm at work like every four hours, if I'm sitting here around like way more often. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll work on that next time. All right. So we, uh, but that's the whole idea. Okay. All right. Good to see nice. you again. Yeah. <laughs> Glad to hear your progress. That's great. Happy to talk to you. <laughs> Good. Okay. We'll see you. Bye. Bye-bye.